is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name is Matt Brand. Welcome to the Country Hour. Making agribusiness news this lunchtime, Mark Allison, who's been the boss of Elders for about 10 years, has announced his retirement plans. When I came into Elders uh, and when I became chairman, uh, we were still in uh, Bad Bank. I think our market capitalisation was around $50 million. Uh, and we went back to being a core pure play agribusiness. Today we're, we're sitting at about $2 billion market cap. Also today, allowing hunters onto your farm. Does it actually make a difference in terms of protecting your crop from birds? If you go down the road and you'll see a carpet of magpie geese under under mango trees, whereas here, by the time we drive out at 11am, there won't be any birds within the crop. They have moved on to uh, a safer and uh, greener pastures. And if you live along the Cox Peninsula Road, I wonder if you've noticed the trucks yet. Core Lithium has started trucking ore to the Darwin port for its first ever shipment. You'll be hearing from the company chief executive on the Country Hour today. We are broadcasting right across the Territory on the ABC, streaming online, and g'day there if you're tuning in via the podcast. First up today, let's talk about the weekend weather. Yeah, there was some lovely rain across parts of the top end, and there was rain in central Australia, but it came with some pretty nasty wind as well. Hello to everyone in Alice Springs this lunchtime. I trust the cleanup is going well. A pretty brutal storm swept through Saturday evening. It caused some damage. And to cattle stations to the east, well, they experienced some damaging weather as well. At Huckata Station on the Plenty Highway, the roof was torn off part of the workers' quarters and a number of large trees came down around the homestead. Jay Gook is from Huckata and he spoke to Max Rowley about how it un unfolded. I was actually out camped out um, just been putting a new fence line in um, so Emma and Kirsty were the only ones that were here when it happened the other night yeah they reckon very savvy so they got me on the sat phone I come home just been cleaning trees up and trying to get the roof off the quarters so it doesn't continue on. What was the damage like when you when you got back to the homestead? Yeah, it was pretty savage. It was um, like it snapped the trees off, you know, didn't knock them over. It just snapped the trees off. So, yeah, it was a pretty savage wind, eh? And the roof, you said the roof was uh, torn off the off the quarters, the workers' quarters. Yeah, yeah, tore it off and flipped it clean over, left the um, TV dish was still on it and smashed it all up, but... Uh, yeah, flipped it up, and we only put it in a couple of years ago, so it must have been a fairly wild storm. It would have been good to see what the winds were doing. And the workers, uh, where are they staying at the moment? Oh, it's it, like in an L shape, so only one side's taking off. The other other buildings there, and the boys have sort of bunked up together a bit there. What did they have to say about the storm and being under that? Nah, they've, they're all all away for the weekend, so they come back and got a bit of a Friday and some moved their gear and 
um, yeah, they were a bit, they'd never seen that local fellas, you know, from Hearts Range, born ready, and they, um, yeah, they got a bit of a fright when they seen it. It's brought down some real healthy trees, you know, they were, they were in the lawn, so they were well looked after, and yeah, just snapped them off, and like, they were sort of trees of 10 inches round, sort of stuff, eh? And where you were camping, you didn't get the full force of the storm there, I take it? No, no, it got rain, like it filled me swag up and, um, yeah, it was good rain, but nothing like the house here. How long is it going to take to, to repair all the damage? Yeah, you know, all the trees and that won't take a great deal. We've got most of them out now, but the roof on the quarters, I will have to get someone out to do it properly. And how much rain did you get in the end? We Just in that that storm, we got 42 mil um, here at the house. Some of our farm bots out the other bores have... Uh, recorded a bit more and a little bit less, but right up in the north country, like zero on, the, on our farm lot. So, yeah, it must have just followed the river down or something. And damage aside, was that rain still welcome news for the station? Oh, yeah, yeah. It just keeps topping it up. We've had an unreal season so far. Like the last couple of months has been... Unbelievable, Tula, uh, Alice Springs Radio weekend, we got a 52 mil that weekend. Um, yeah, the place is looking amazing. When's the last time you had such a good season? Yeah, well, this is our fourth year here now. Um, I reckon it'd be, it's the best since we've been here. Eh? You know, the first year we were here, we got uh, Cyclone Trevor give us 152, but it was in a couple of days. Um, yeah, but we'd be up to that now, I reckon, just with all this other bit of rain. But it's been over, you know, a couple of months, so it's been really good. There are plenty of rivers running at the back of the house. What it was yesterday, I haven't seen it this morning. What are the plans looking ahead then? Yeah, we won't be selling any cattle, eh? We've got way too much feed, um... Yeah, we've got a lot of fencing to go on and um, some yards to build, so, yeah, we've been pretty busy. We've been trying to do a second round, but just these showers, we're just trying to trap, but these showers just keep holding us up a bit, eh? That is Jay Gook from Huckata Station out on the Plenty Highway speaking to Max Rowley next door at Lucy Creek Station. I've been told they're busy cleaning up as well from a storm that came through yesterday. On Sunday, it tore down a few big trees around the homestead as well. Thankfully, no infrastructure was damaged. Thankfully, everyone is okay. The cleanup in Alice Springs continues after that storm ripped through on Saturday Eve. The damage bill, holy dooly, hey? And you can see pictures up on the ABC Alice Springs Facebook page. It ripped off. The roof of a local school there in the Alice. Plenty of trees knocked over onto houses and cars. And all through a a fairly narrow strip through town is what we've been told. In the end, around 4,000 homes were without power over the weekend, but electricity has been restored to almost all of those. Ian Carlton is from NT Police Fire and Emergency Services. He says there were plenty of people calling for assistance. 
So we've had about 170 requests for assistance uh, from people. We've uh, triaged a lot of them. There's about uh, three jobs, three or four jobs to, to complete today with the, the volunteers and our crews. Uh, still about 20 jobs to, to triage and visit. So we'll be looking at those jobs today, trying to make contact with the people uh, and, and arrange a time or, or go around and, and do that job. Uh, there's quite a few of the jobs that, uh, and trees are just too big for, for our volunteer crews to do. So we're, we're urging some of the residents to... Uh, I'd contact their insurance companies, contact an arborist or, or, or look at uh, some alternative ways. Some of those trees are, are fairly big uh, and by the time our crews or, or homeowners or others start to tackle them, mm. uh, if you're not a professional in that area, it can cause some further damage. That is Ian Carlton from NT Police Fire and Emergency Services. That storm through Alice. Here's what it sounded like. So to those cleaning up this afternoon, I hope you're doing well. That's not nice, is it? Not nice at all to go through an experience like that, have trees fall onto cars and houses. Thankfully, everyone's okay. Dan, we haven't heard reports of anyone injured or in trouble. No. So that is good. That is good. It is 20 to 1. You are tuned into the Country Hour. If you live along the Cox Peninsula Road, I wonder if you've noticed any trucks yet coming out of the core lithium mine. We're talking about this next. G'day, this is Chris Nathaniel at Tropiculture Australia Bees Creek and you're listening to The Country Hour. Yeah, so a new lithium mine on the outskirts of Darwin has started transporting ore to the Darwin port and is expected to do its first shipment in the next few weeks. The chief executive of Core Lithium is Gareth Manderson. I spoke to him earlier on about the first truckloads leaving the mine site. So in the, in the last uh, week or so, we've commissioned our crushing circuit and we are now transporting our first product to the port of Darwin from the Finnis uh, Lithium Mine. Uh, we're about an hour out of Darwin. Uh, 80% or more of our, uh, of our workers uh, actually uh, live and reside in and around the, the local area. Uh, and we're really pleased to uh, to be able to see a mine that has got up and running in five or six years in the in the territory right next to Darwin. So, to do this job, you need trucks. Tell us about that and what it sort of looks like in the community of Berry Springs. Oh uh, yeah, so um, we're transporting our first uh, direct shipping, also DSO is what it's called. Uh, to the Darwin port using road trains. So a lot of people in the Territory are very familiar with road trains and we'll be doing that uh, during the during the day, sometimes at, at night. Uh, there'll be about 10 truck movements a day. We spent a fair bit of time in the local community over the weekend talking to uh, to a number, number of residents, uh, local councils, the, the local uh, Indigenous people, um, to make sure that they're aware of it, understand it, and the engagement's been fantastic. I really appreciate the advice and uh, the comments people have made about how we might be able to do it safely and some of the things that they know and understand about that that uh, road that we're transporting on. And you've actually met with the Litchfield Council today. What, what are they saying? Do they have any concerns? No, they're quite comfortable. We're pretty open and transparent about what, what we're doing. They've got a good connection to the community they're listening as well. So um, we use all of those touch points to make sure that we know and understand the things the community are concerned about and respond to them. 
I've got a text here from an audience member, no name attached to it, but they say, Matt, the Cox Peninsula Road will be a goat track after the wet season with the amount of triples going up and down it. What would you say to someone like that? Oh, look, we're quite keen, obviously, to make sure that the road stays in good condition and we're in constant dialogue with uh, with, with Dipple uh, to get ready for this uh, transport, to monitor the condition of the road, to make sure it doesn't get into the state that uh, your viewer is concerned about. This is all going to the Darwin Port for export. Uh, what can you tell us about the first ever shipment? Oh, so the first shipment will uh, will head to uh, a facility called a converter, and it will take uh, our lithium ore, uh, turn it into a um, into a concentrate, and then lithium hydroxide, which then goes into the battery supply chain for electric vehicles. And where's the where's that destination for the first shipment? The, the first uh, shipment will go to uh, to China. All of the conversion capacity uh, for lithium uh, at the moment is actually in, in China. There's a number of projects in Western Australia and other parts of the world, uh, but the predominant capacity is in China right now. And so everything getting trucked and exported at the moment, as you say, is ore. Long term, that won't be the case. Can you explain that to our audience? Yeah, so uh, in addition to the crushing circuit, we have a concentrator on site that will um, add value to the uh, to the ore that we mine uh, from the Grants Pit. Um, that uh, concentrate uh, facility is under construction at the moment, very close to uh, kicking off commissioning that should start early next year. Once we've commissioned the facility, we expect to be transporting concentrate uh, to the Darwin port, and that should happen before the middle of next year. Are you able to give our audience a sense of the difference in value between ore and concentrate? Yeah, so um, really good question. We, we take ore out of the pit and uh, and then you can concentrate it, which actually means that uh, you increase the proportion of lithium uh, to, uh, to 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 six uh, five or six percent, um, and that means that we are not transporting as much material, and the customer is getting a, a material that has uh, has higher lithium content. And of course, obviously, the more lithium you have in that product, uh, the higher the value. Just in the last month, the uh, the Tesla supply deal made some headlines because it didn't eventuate. Are you able to explain to us sort of what happened there? Oh, so, so we're in conversations with a, a number of different offtake partners, uh, both uh, converters uh, as well as uh, uh, large uh, motor vehicle companies, and we're making sure that uh, we're we're able to get the appropriate contract uh, for that uh, that offtake. So we've got. 80% of our product is uh, spoken for for the first four years. And so we're in conversation with a number of different partners about uh, what we might be able to do uh, from year five onwards. But going back to my question, though, are you able to explain and provide a little bit of light about how that all ended up with Tesla? Well, we're in conversations with Tesla. Uh, we had a binding term sheet. We had a series of great conversations and we'll continue to, to, to talk with Tesla. Um, we, we both decided that actually we would just let that lapse. And for you... As the chief executive, how, how does it make you feel to watch the first trucks heading out? Oh, it's fantastic. I, uh, I think it's a culmination of a lot of hard work from uh, everyone within Core Lithium, uh, from uh, the community as well as the, as the, the government. Uh, you know, there's a number of people that have contributed to those trucks that we see being transporting DSO from uh, the Finnis uh, Lithium uh, operations through to the Darwin Port. Thanks for your time on the country, Al.
Thank you very much, Matt. Appreciate it. That is Gareth Manderson. He's the chief executive of Call Lithium, this company now transporting ore to the Darwin port, that first shipment due out in the coming weeks. Our text number of the country hour is 0487 991057. Someone here says, I would have thought the mine and the government would have done some works on this road, especially seeing that lunatics on push bikes like to ride along there. 0487991057 is the text of the country hour off the back of this news of ore now being transported to the port. Shares in Core Lithium are taking off. As we go to air this afternoon, its share price has climbed 11%. Year to date, shares in Core have increased by 194%. Its share price has never been bigger than it is this afternoon at $1.86 a share. I tell you a company whose share price is not doing well this afternoon, and that's Elders, one of the oldest agribusinesses in Australia. The Elders share price, as we go to air right now, is down 19%. That's, that is big for Elders, down 19%. So what's going on? Well, I can tell you one thing. It's long-serving Chief Executive Managing Director Mark Allison has today confirmed that he is retiring, stepping down from that role. You'll hear from him next, but let's have some Aussie music for this Oz Music Month. This is Tom Curtin. New music from him. Hope you enjoy it. New music from Tom Curtin, Heaven on Earth, and well done to Tom on the weekend. His business won the Best Tourist Attraction Award at the 2022 Brolga Northern Territory Tourism Awards. So, Tom, new album out, winning awards, winning life. Well done, Tom. It's nine to one on the country hour. Got a text here from Nev who lives out at Bino. He says, I drive the Cox Peninsula Road twice a week and I'm in mining, says Nev. He reckons the trucking company for core needs to tell their drivers to stay on their side of the road driving around bends or get better drivers is Nev's experience. 0487 is the text number here at the country hour. Uh, just quickly to other news regarding CORE. I forgot to mention this, my apologies. Uh, CORE has also announced to the ASX that it's on the hunt for a new chief financial officer following the resignation of uh, Simon Icopetta, who's been in that role for four years. So he will continue to work with CORE over the coming months to support an orderly transition, according to the company. But yeah, on the hunt for a new chief financial officer. Conversations. Spend an hour in the life of someone else. Lord of the Flies. It was 30 boys. No parents were allowed. Someone who has seen and done remarkable things. The island was practically deserted. The United States Marines were using it for artillery practice. But there was an abandoned concrete pineapple factory. That was where we lived. Now, action. Hear the latest conversations weekday mornings from 11 on ABC Radio. Or anytime on the ABC Listen app. Okay, making big agribusiness news this afternoon. The managing director of Elders has announced he will retire next year, by which time he will have been in that role for about 10 years. This news comes as Elders announced a statutory profit after tax 
of $162.9 million for the 12-month period. Its revenue over that time surged 35% to nearly $3.5 billion. Mark Allison spoke with the Country Hour's Cassie Huff about his time at Elders and his decision to retire. It doesn't feel like 10 years, but uh, that may be a sign of growing older. Uh, so uh, I think you know, when I came into Elders uh, and when I became chairman, uh, we were still in uh, Bad Bank. I think our market capitalisation was around $50 million. Uh, and uh, you know, we uh, developed the eight-point plan, and we basically just did it ourselves. And we went back to being a core pure play agribusiness. And I think uh, as we go through that period, you know, we finished... Uh, Today we're, we're sitting at about $2 billion market cap, so there's been a very strong um, uh, shareholder uh, benefit. But I think when I look at the, the things I'm most proud of, it's seeing elders people being able to uh, contribute back into regional rural Australia, supporting local communities, funding uh, you know, sports organisations in local communities, investing in ag tech to help agriculture. And uh, you know we've been the most trusted brand in agriculture for the last three years, and, uh, and that you know, 183 years later, that's that's quite an important uh, uh, part of our DNA and what we actually do. So, um, from my sense, it's it's actually seeing us being able to be equipped to look after our local uh, communities, our elders, people, shareholders have clearly done very very well through the period, and uh, you know we have uh, we're set for growth now into the future. Seems they've not taken to your your, your announcement that you're leaving terribly well with uh, the share price dropping just today. I think it's a, it's like everything we do though it's, it's you know it's core to the Acorn plan low pulse rate methodical be calm it's a long game we're playing and if anyone who's in regional rural Australia or in agriculture doesn't play a long game uh, they're, they're bound to be disappointed there has been some excellent profit this year you're up for nine percent after tax to 163 million dollars what's driven that so I think the strategy is this season you know from the market when we look at how much of our upside comes out of better seasonal conditions. Uh, our, our analysis shows us about 47% and 53%. So the, um, the 53% came of our, out of our self-help and things we can control. And we tend to kind of work on the things we can control, not, not what comes out of the sky or commodity prices or, or wars in Ukraine, etc. There's a fairly healthy margin, though, that's that's been required to, to achieve those those profits at a time when, when inputs are costing an increasing amount. Uh, to have a, a profit before tax of 42% and a profit after tax of 9%, uh, costs a concern? Our cost to serve has uh, reduced during this period. So uh, because we've been growing at a faster rate, obviously, than the, what we're putting costs in. But, but it's something we... Uh, costs uh, in terms of running costs... Uh, we watch very closely. In terms of the costs of fertiliser, crop protection, animal health, I mean, largely we, we don't manufacture them. So we buy at the high cost and then, uh, and then we sell. Our margin, particularly for some of the crop prote- uh, protection products, has reduced uh, because uh, you know, it's a competitive market, so, so we can't just mark up any price we want to. It, it, it'll depend what competitors are, are, are uh, are selling for and what the market price is. So, so yeah, I think uh, by backward integrating, we've been able to get a little bit more of the margin, but it's still been very, very tight. And, and our, the drop in our cash conversion was around the increased costs of, uh, of big parts of our inventory.
is there a point where the market won't be able to afford much more? Is, is you, the margin is is already slimming, as you've said there. Is there going to become a cap where the, the market can't accept any more price rises? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the outlook for uh, fertiliser prices is, is uh, a little different. I think for crop protection, it looks like it's... Uh, it's uh, softening, so supply-demand means prices uh, are uh, softening, which is great for everyone. But, but I, I think that the way, you know, just from uh, being around for a little while, what I've seen is that if, particularly if, if it's crop and there's high returns by putting the crop in, if, if they're high commodity prices and high input prices, it's kind of okay because you're investing more to get more. Uh, the problem is, and that's the current scenario, that's, that's the current scenario. If there are high input prices and low commodity prices, you send, tend to get a, um, a reduction of inputs. So I think it depends on the uh, depends on the market. But from our view, you know, from my viewpoint, I mean, we would uh, we, we support regional rural Australia. We do our best to keep uh, prices as low as possible. It costs us much more. You know, we pass it on as much as per with the competitive situation. And uh, we do our best to have product available for uh, people so they can, they can plant or whatever, or spray pests or fungal, fungal activity or whatever. A recession could be on the cards, though. The GFC almost bankrupted elders. How will elders ride out a potential economic downturn if that does come to pass, if this, this war does continue, for example? Yeah, well, it's a completely different business to the elders that got caught in the GFC. So in terms of debt, like where our leverage is 1.2, we've got massive headroom. We're generating, generating yeah, hundreds of millions of uh, cash. Uh, we, I mean, we, we've, one of the hallmarks of the last uh, nine years with the Apple plans is financial discipline, not overextending, not getting caught, not doing things that don't fit the core kill play agribusiness strategy. So there is a high degree of discipline that we've uh, introduced. So, so I think, uh, yeah, we're, we're a long way from anywhere close to having a distressed balance sheet or, or uh, any issues like that. And on the, if there is a recession, I mean, people still need to eat. Agriculture still moves. We've got across. You know, in our real estate businesses, uh, interest rates have uh, impacted regional rural real estate. At the same time, a quarter of our, uh, of our uh, real estate business is actually uh, uh, property management. And so that's improved significantly as people are renting more. Elders, Managing Director Mark Allison speaking to Cassie Huff. He's announced today that he will retire next year and shareholders are getting out. As we go to air right now, shares in Elders have dropped more than 20%. So it started this morning with a market capitalisation of over $2 billion. Right now, that number is $1.68 billion. My goodness. Still got plenty to come on today's Country Hour, but now we've got to go to the newsroom. It's 1 o'clock. My name's Ashley from Bam Bam Spring Station. I'm Jacqueline Dakin from Anthony Lagoon. I'm Georgie from Catherine. And you're listening to the Country Hour. <laughs> Matt Brown with you this afternoon. It's apparently going to cost about $50 million to build a cotton gin in Kununurra near the WANT border. And the growers there involved in growing cotton have locked in the last few dollars and are very excited. You'll hear from Kununurra cotton grower Jim Engelke in a moment. And allowing hunters to come onto your farm, does it make a difference in terms of keeping birds off your crops? If you go down the road and you'll see a carpet of magpie geese under under mango trees whereas here 
by the time we drive out at 11am there won't be any birds within the crop they have moved on to uh, a safer and uh, greener pastures yeah we'll head along to a mango plantation to check that all out second half of the country out make sure you stick around for it Let's go to the Weather Bureau. Billy Lynch is there this afternoon. How are you, Billy? Yeah, I'm okay. Thank you, Matt. That's the go. Uh, what an interesting weekend. What would be your summary of, of what uh, what happened? Well, it was chaotic. Um, there were some pretty decent storms through, yeah, the Barclay and the Simpson District. And there were some pretty good rainfall totals around the, the sort of the Roper River area and sort of just south of the top end yeah are you able to share some of the best ones with us for that weekend period and matt yes so um just starting from north to south uh, i guess um elizabeth valley 16 millimeters adelaide river dirty lagoon 37 at b boom crossing 39 geriatric park 45 uh, we've got um about 15 mils in the central waterhouse 61 the Elsie Homestead on the Roper River. Uh, and then further south, um, we've got uh, 16 at Camfield River, about 20 at Mount Sanford, 12 at Kalkaringi, uh, and even around um, the Yellow Springs region. This is before the Saturday afternoon storm. I think this was Friday rainfall. Falls of around 20 to 30 millimetres. Mm. Uh, we heard from Huckada Station in the first half of the program. From memory, they got a bit over 40 millimetres in that uh, storm that swept through on Saturday night. So if you're under it, there's been a bit. What about the week ahead? What uh, are Territorians likely to see, Billy? Yeah, look, things have settled down through central Australia today. So it's, it's cooler. Uh, it's only 26 in Alice Springs at the moment. It's sunny. Um, this is with a ridge that is pushing into the south. It's it's pushed the trough up into the Barclay district, so um, really still the northern half, still pretty primed for some afternoon showers and thunderstorms. And um, I guess today, in terms of where the, the heaviest storms might be, we're sort of looking at a, a region from about Catherine uh, down to about Elliot and across that northern Barclay district where... The thunderstorms could be fairly slow moving, um, so producing some of those isolated totals of around 50 millimetres or so, there's probably a slight risk of some, some damaging wind gusts in there as well. Okay, and i just looking at top-end radars. There's, there's already a bit of colour starting to flash up this afternoon, hey? Yeah, pretty coastal at this stage around the Daly District, um, around the, the Gulf of Carpentaria coast and, and a few across the Gregory as well. But, um, yeah, the, the clouds are just starting to bubble up, so that should fill in across inland parts of the the top end and, and down towards that trough, as I mentioned, throughout the afternoon and evening. Okay. Anything else we need to be aware of in terms of the week ahead? Look, in the north, we're expecting these showers and storms to be a bit more frequent than they have been the last couple of weeks mm-hmm. so um, temperatures are going to be cooler um, that heat wave has finally gone yeah well, actually I mean, that could have almost been our headline really heat wave <laughs> <laughs> warnings have been cancelled we're, we're free of a heat wave warning is that right yeah yep so that was wow. uh, a bit over a month Shit. running um, so yeah that doesn't look like it's going to come back too soon 
actually temperatures right across the territory are going to be below average uh, this week as um, storms do spread south. So the storms are going to spread down the western border during the next few days. Um, and sort of tomorrow into Wednesday, we're probably focusing in more around the VRD and into the Tanami district where we could see some fairly healthy totals, 10 to 30 millimetres, and maybe even upwards of 50 to 80 millimetres. Wow. November, yeah. starting to deliver, Billy. It is starting to look more like the wet season yep. this week, that is for sure. Good, good, good. All right, then. Thanks so much for your time this afternoon. Thanks, Matt. That is Billy Lynch there at the Weather Bureau. That's a more promising forecast for the week ahead, isn't it? Our text number here at the Country Hour is 0487991057. In the first half of the program, we heard from the Chief Executive of Core Lithium, that company now trucking ore from the mine site out there on the Cox Peninsula Road to the Darwin Port, its first shipment due out in the coming weeks. We're hearing from you this afternoon. Got a text here from Mick who says he's a keen fisho. So en route to Dundee, I'm a regular user of the Cox Peninsula Road day and night, says Mick. Sadly, there has been too little maintenance on this road. The edges are beyond a joke, says Mick. If a small vehicle goes off the edge, they are in dire peril. As is usual, I guess someone will have to go under a truck before something is done, reckons Mick. And someone else here says the mining chief executive you spoke to would say that, wouldn't he? Let's have a look at this road in April. 0487991057, the text at the Country Hour. Hi, my name's Sam Furman. I'm an apprentice at Helimuster NT. I maintain all the aerial mustering helicopters up here in the north, and you're listening to the Country Hour. It is 12 past one. Let's talk about cotton. Here in the Northern Territory, of course, a gin has been built at Tawu Station to the north of Catherine. That will be processing cotton next season. And just across the border in the Kimberley, all of the pieces of the puzzle are starting to fall into place there for growers. The Kimberley Cotton Gin, set for Kununurra, is now fully funded. It's been backed by the NAIF, the Northern Australia Infrastructure Facility. It's got several shareholders. And the Kimberley Cotton Company now feels confident enough to come out and say that it's raised the $50 million that is required to build that gin at Kununurra. Deputy Chair of the Cotton Company is Jim Engelke. He says it's a major boost for the North's agriculture sector. Well, as you'd appreciate, getting to fully fund it in the current climate is a difficult process with uh, supply chain constraints and uh, the various issues that are going on globally. Look, to get to where we've got to, it's very exciting for the region and I think everyone's very much looking forward to having a cotton gin built and operational and um, having a, a good solid industry uh, in the ore back again. How long has this journey been to get to this point? How long has you know the resurgence of cotton in the ore been on the horizon? Well, Kai put in our first cotton crop some five years ago, just in a different format than it had been done before. That turned out to be reasonably successful in that first year. We've continued the same way. Clearly, there's a lot more people growing it now. Um, so it's, it's more recent iteration is, I guess, five or six years old. And 
how would you describe the process? Has it been a difficult one? Has it been arduous getting to this point where we're now fully funded and things are sort of really ramping up? Yeah, look, I wouldn't say the process has been straightforward. We've had a few just in recent times, you know, clearly just getting hold of anything is difficult and getting prices. And um, if you price something this week, it's out of date next week. So, you know, that's that's a challenge in itself. But look, I think generally speaking, yes, we've taken a fair while to get to where we have. There's been a, a few different uh, models and a few different takes on how this might look. I think if you look at what we've got today, I think we've got a very, very good uh, basis uh, for which to build a strong and successful industry uh, on the back of. Can you paint a bit of a picture of, of why it's so important to have a cotton gin locally in, in the ord? Uh, look, uh, very important. Given that uh, for the industry to get to scale, um, we need to have local processing. For the last several years, we've been freighting cotton modules, 3,500 k's and more in some cases, uh, east to be processed in uh, gins on the east uh, eastern seaboard. Clearly, that doesn't have a long-term future. You are limited by the amount of trucks uh, and you simply cannot freight that much uh, cotton out of here. And so it puts a cap on the area that we can grow. Having a cotton gin in the region uh, allows us to develop scale uh, and the cotton gin has been built with scalability as a key part of it. So allowing us to grow the capacity of the cotton gin and grow the capacity of the production base feeding that cotton gin. This development is huge for, for growers in the region, but what does having a gin mean and a, and a viable cotton industry mean for the region more broadly? Well, it gives us another enterprise. We've got strong presence of horticulture in the, in the region. We've got strong presence of cattle. Uh, we've got a smaller but a reasonably strong presence in maize and various other smaller grain. You know, the cotton gin itself, the investment is significant. The employment, not so much so, but it unlocks a whole lot of other things that allows us to really push the production of the region, lifts the cattle production as well, having a viable protein source through the availability of cottonseed. Uh, we've got fodder production up and running in the valley. So we're, we're tying together all those elements, so grain, cotton, uh, fibre production, and of course that is a well-rounded diet for cattle, which have, the industry's been here for a long, long time. When are we likely to see construction start, do you think? Early next uh, year, it would be, I'm hoping we'll see the, the first signs of uh, fairly significant activity. And when are you hoping to have it up and running by? 2025 is what we've put into our uh, forward uh, estimates, which allows growers and others uh, associated with this industry to prepare and make necessary investments and planning in order to meet that uh, 2025 deadline. That is Kimberley Cotton Company's Deputy Chair Jim Engelke speaking there to Steph Sinclair. Cotton gin at Tawu, one to be built over in Kununurra, North Queensland, also looking at its options. ABC Sports Summer of Cricket. Thursday. Join ABC Sports cricket coverage of the One Day International between Australia and England. Australia v England. This is the One Day you won't want to miss. Live from Adelaide Oval. Summer never sounded so good. Thursday on ABC Radio, ABC Sport Digital and live on the ABC Listen app. Mango farmers have had plenty of challenges this season. There's been wind, there's been rain, a lack of workers, and of course, the magpie geese. 
Yeah, geese. And plenty of other types of birds can chew through a lot of crop if farmers don't intervene. And for some farms, they've gone down the path of inviting hunters onto their orchards for crop protection. Annie Brown went along to see if this method is working. To the frustration of many farmers, magpie geese love mangoes. And during harvest, they can become a major pest as they eat profits. Acacia Hills mango farmer Tu from Tu's Garden has been protecting her crop from magpie geese for more than 20 years. If, if the mess, they, they, because the food source for them, and not just that, they, they, this, the big bird, you know, like five of them sit on the tree, they break lots of branch. When they break the branch, lots of mangoes on the branch, and we, we, we lose that way as well. And also they are looking for water. Sometimes they break the irrigation height. How can we quantify it? Even one bird eat two mangoes a day, and we have tens of thousands someday. So, and that two mangoes, um, one kilogram. So 10,000 kilograms a day, it will be gone if we don't control, which we're facing probably 10 years ago. Over the years, she's tried many ways to scare them off. We pay staff to sit on the car and driving around and honk the horns and put the big speakers and hanging the, the disc, the CD disc, yeah, just to, to scare them or put the scarecrows or, you know, the gas gun. They learn very quickly that uh, this is gimmick. So Harry's and, and Helen's still coming back tomorrow. So therefore, I think the pest mitigation with the game and fields uh, give us the comfort that we can save the mango. Two is one of many mango farmers around Darwin who works in with hunters to protect their crops. Bart Irwin is a spokesman for NT Field and Game Association and a top-end hunter himself. He says hunters will visit farms once or twice a week during harvest. We get here about 5.30am each, each day and uh, we're generally on site till around about 11am. So what would you say is the hunter's job here on the mango farm? Uh, it's to ch- change the behaviour of magpie geese. It's been shown in studies that if uh, we are alerted to the, the early birds arriving, the, what we call the scout birds. We get there within days of that occurring. We can really minimise the impact of uh, a large flocks coming onto the crops. Here at Twos, we've been uh, hunting here for a couple of years. We've been back for a couple of years, and this year there is hardly any uh, perceived goose uh, infraction onto the fruit. Whereas you go down the road, less than five or six hundred metres, and you'll see a carpet of magpie geese under under mango trees. Whereas here, by the time we drive out at 11am, there won't be any birds within the crop. They have moved on to uh, a safer and uh, greener pastures. Yeah, I haven't seen a single magpie goose on this farm all morning yet. No, we, we've had that effect. It, it, as I say, it takes two to three years. In the third year is when you generally see the mark change. And by the fourth year, they completely avoid the property. Then it's just maintenance, and especially on those um, early scout birds each season, it then has total effect. We've done many crops around Darwin. Since 2007, we started this. 
worked and we've worked on hay, melons, uh, mangoes, uh, all, all sorts of crops where, um, where magpie geese or uh, little corellas or sulphur-crested cockatoos uh, cause issues. So what happens to the magpie geese that you, you shoot on the farms here? They're all consumed. We regard it as a consumptive harvest. We process 25% of those birds and they go to the uh, Darwin Renal Unit where they're given away as um, bush tucker for uh, elderly uh, Aboriginal people who can no longer hunt because they're hooked up to a dialysis machine for hours daily or um, periodically during the week. Uh, Sometimes with whole birds we'll deliver them into some of the indigenous villages uh, in and around Darwin just uh, to help those less fortunate put a proper proper meal in front of the kids that night. Sounds like a very effective program, like farmers and hunters working together in this way. It it is. It changes the behaviour to the point where you can see birds in the sky they recognise the farm, they recognise that it's been lethal for some of their mates and they don't cross the fence. You've got to consider that we're moving on vast numbers of birds in comparison to the number we're shooting. The flocks are massive when they come over. You're pulling two birds down and 22 are getting the message. Oh, this ain't so hot. That is Bart Irwin, who is from NT Field and Games, speaking there to Any Brown. Big thanks to Two from Two's Garden for leading the country hour. Head to her orchard once again. Now, just quickly on mangoes, the current crop forecast for the Darwin region is hitting at 2.5 million trays. Catherine expected to produce 2.1 million trays. That's not bad. That's slightly up on last year's season and certainly the mango harvest is peaking in the Catherine region. We're talking close to half a million trays getting picked and packed just around Catherine this week if all goes to plan the season in the Darwin region now starting to taper off. Hope you can join us for tomorrow's Country Hour. We've got some big property news to share with you. So I'll see you at 12.30 for the Country Hour. Keep it rural.